Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We continue our way through this wonderful book of Scripture. Lord willing, we have this week and next week. We will be done Hebrews 13 and the whole book. I don't know if there's a sigh of relief or of disappointment. Oh, I've been enjoying it or you're ready for it to be done. I've enjoyed every moment of it and I hope you have to some degree. Sermon title, as it reads in your bulletin, is The Gospel and Worship. I think it's good every so often to examine ourselves to ask, why did I come to church today? I think it's just really important for us to continue to be reminded and at least thinking, or even if you're not used to going to church on a regular basis. Why, why do we go to church? And to what extent is it God, the worship of a holy, awesome God that is the main focus or desire of our heart for why you're here today? We ended the message last week for all of you that were here by pointing out all of the silly reasons why some people choose churches. Not that they're non-issues whatsoever, but matters of preference toward music. You know, it's sad. Sometimes it seems as if we make music preferences so important that we end up worshiping worship music and not actually worshiping God. Sometimes we make the activities and programs that a church offers more important than anything else. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard people say, I don't really care about the preaching or the church or this or that. I mean, I, I just go there because it's got good programs for my kids. You know, my kids need good programs. So in essence, you go to church, not for God, but for your kids. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's good to ask yourself these questions. Why did you come here to this church? We love in, in this church to poke fun at, like, well, it's not because of entertainment, Right? It's not because of a show that you're about to receive. We, we might read long scripture readings. We might pray for a while. We confess our sins corporately. These are things that a lot of churches today don't do anymore. Why, why are we doing those things? And the reason is what's listed out in your bulletin are all elements of things that are commanded of us in scripture. When you read that order of service, we didn't make that up. This was not like Phil sat around and thought, okay, what would be the best way to organize a worship service? The reading of the Scriptures is commanded of us in 1 Timothy 4. Do not give up reading the Scriptures. So we read an Old and New Testament reading. We're told to pray together and submit our prayers, not just for ourselves, but also for the government. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that we should pray for our government leaders and officials. That's why regularly you hear about prayers of Supreme Court justices or the president or local officials. The things that we're doing here are because they've been laid out in God's Word, and it's because we want to please and honor the God to whom we want to worship. I wonder if that's why you're here, to worship God. It's the theme of our service is worship, but I, I want us to ask ourselves not just corporate worship, but an idea we've not talked much about at Embassy, at least, as I can remember, 
This idea that worship consumes all of our lives. To put it plainly, A.W. Tozer was a pastor that lived a while ago, uh, earlier in this century. He said, if you do not worship Christ seven days a week, you do not worship him even one day a week. I think that sums it up quite well in terms of where we're headed this morning in Hebrews chapter 13. If you think that worship only happens here and only happens in these forms or circumstances through prayers or scripture readings or sermons, or a lot of times we have such a truncated view of worship, it's just songs that we sing. I'm hoping that we will expand through this scripture passage our view of what God wants of us in worship. That is my hope and prayer. Scripture passage that we're going to look at is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, just these two verses, and we will use the surrounding context to help us understand them. I have two halves with one sentence to hopefully kind of sum up everything that we're going to do this morning in this passage. The gospel root, that's half one, part one. The gospel root produces worship fruit. It even rhymes. How clever is that? But I get both of these ideas from our passage, not just to sound clever or tickle your ears. The gospel root produces worship fruit. Let's see that in our passage. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. First, what is the gospel root that produces worship fruit? The word gospel is not in our passage, so we need to make sure we're understanding when I say the gospel in worship or the gospel root. What do we mean by gospel? The most simple way to understand this word is to understand that it's not a Bible word. The word gospel is a word that was used during Bible times to describe the news, because that's what the word means. News. Gospel means news, like a news reporter declaring to you the events of that day. So the gospel is an act in history that can be reported and told. It is not advice. It is not suggestions. It is not tips for living. It is a report. And this sort of news, gospel news, because there's news, but then there's gospel news, because the word gospel means good news. And the sort of context in which the word gospel was used when the Bible writers and even Jesus himself used this word, they pulled it out and said, Gospel is the sort of news that is earth-changing, life-altering, transforming kind of news. So I want you to imagine that you're home today, and you turn on the evening news on your television or radio or your blogs that you read. There's two kinds of news. There's news that you can just dismiss and say, yeah, that's not relevant to me. I don't care. Helpful information, maybe, maybe not. But then there's news every once in a while that affects and changes everyone and everything. Do you remember where you were when you heard the 9-11 news? 
See, that was bad news, but that's the sort of news that I'm referring to that affects everyone. It's, it alters the course of history. Things do not remain the same. That's a, a date in history that we remember probably for the rest of our lives, especially as Americans, but if not even the rest of the world, even non-American citizens understand what 9-11 was. This is what I mean when I say gospel news is that kind of news, but it's good news, not bad news like 9-11. And in the context of the early church and in the context of the first century, it was most often used to talk about when a new king or a new Caesar would be put in place. So hearie, hearie, the man would stand upon some sort of wooden box or something, and he would declare and proclaim as a herald of the news that King Caesar so-and-so had died, and a new Caesar was in place, and he has news to share. What I have for you this morning is news that is good news that you cannot leave this room and say, yeah, that, that doesn't affect me. I can be indifferent to that. I can just say, that's good for you, Phil. I'm glad that you believe those things, but that, that has no bearing on my life. That means you didn't hear the news correctly. It means you were a poor listener. This sort of news alters and affects everyone's life, including all of you in this room. But where in the world do we see news in verses 15 and 16, the gospel root here in verse 15? And it's in the first two words, through him. That's the gospel root leading and producing worship fruit. These two words, through him. Thankfully, in our English translation, those are the first two words in this verse. Sometimes when you're reading translations of something, they reorder the words. So they could be the first two words in the sentence in the original language, or they could not, depending on how it fits into the English language. But you need to know that sometimes when you're reading the old original language that the Bible was written in, the first words in the Greek are often emphasized or they're there on purpose. And so in this case, the through him is to emphatically state that everything that's about to be said doesn't make any sense unless there's the through him. It's emphatic. It's placed in the front on purpose. So in other words, you should be reading the sentence like this, through him, without knowing this, I can't continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips to acknowledge his name and do good works and share what I have and please God. Without the through him, there is no pleasing God. So who's the him? Now, I could just tell you, or you could guess, well, it's probably Jesus, because it's a Christian church. Let's just guess Jesus, but let's not guess. Let's not just take the preacher at his word. Let's you look into your Bible and see, okay, in the flow of this writer, in this scripture passage, who's the him? And we don't have to look too far. Verse 12 says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So if we look at verse 12, we see that the writer is thinking about the death of Jesus on a cross outside of the city gate of Jerusalem on a mount called Golgotha. Outside the gate, Jesus hung on a cross next to two, soldier, two criminals and was sentenced to death by Roman soldiers. Therefore, we should go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, he then concludes, 
based on what Jesus has done. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him, Jesus, the one who suffered outside the gate. That's the him. And we know that most plainly from verse 12. So read it like this then. Through the sacrifice Jesus suffered outside the gate by dying on a cross to sanctify you by his own blood, offer a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Through that sacrifice, you can offer sacrifices that please God. Do you see now already the gospel root? That there's something that's happened in history, an act in history. The man named Jesus living on this earth, dying a death outside of the city of Jerusalem, that act forever changes how you and I behave and how we interact with God. Through him, there is now a new king in the same way that this word gospel was used to declare. There's a new Caesar, there's a new king, there's someone else on the throne. Through him, there's a new king on the throne for us to obey. Through him, there is a new high priest to offer a sacrifice. Through him, verse 10 says in chapter 13, if you look over, we have an altar. Through him, there is a new sin sacrifice. And through him, there is a new covenant and relationship with God. And it wasn't as if the old priests or the old kings or the old altars and sacrifices were necessarily bad or corrupt. And it's like, all right, we finally have a legitimate good one that's not corrupt. It's just that Hebrews is telling us from beginning to end, this priest, this sacrifice, this altar is so ridiculously better. That's what this book's about. That's what we've been studying for over 30 weeks now. Jesus, through him, is better. A better priest, a better altar, a better sacrifice with a better covenant. Therefore, I can declare to you with those two words through him, Jesus is better. The gospel is the root through Jesus being better that you can come and please God. God can be pleased with your life, with your sacrifices, and you can know that with great assurance because of what Christ has done through the gospel. In a graduation speech some time ago, Oprah Winfrey said to the graduates, at the end of the day, it just doesn't matter what we call it. She said, I call it God, but you can call it energy. Some of you call it Allah or Buddha. But whatever you want, use it to describe that source of strength that you get to turn outside of yourself to help you in your life. And you do that and serve and work with all your might to make this a better world to live in. With all due respect to Mrs. Oprah Winfrey, I do not want to encourage you this morning to call it whatever you like. There is one source, there is one root, there is one Lord under heaven by which man can be saved through him, and that him is Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man and one Lord and Savior. And the good news that I have to you, for you today, that offer you, that you should offer and remind yourself every day, is that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only sacrifice for which you now can make sacrifices. Therefore, the gospel is the root. Through Jesus Christ, God gives you everything you need to do His will. 
Look with me at the benediction that we'll look at next week in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is all describing gospel news. God brought Jesus from the dead, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, and by the blood of his eternal covenant. Notice what verse 21 says now. May that same God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The pleasure of God. Worship. The focus of our worship should not be to please the people around us. Well, I'm only going to sing if nobody's around me because I want to make sure that I'm not sounding terrible to the people around me. You're not supposed to be singing to the people around you. Well, I don't really want to pray because I'm afraid I might not pray well. We're not praying for the people around us. We pray to God. We please God. He is the focus of our prayers and our songs and our praises. But notice here that everything you need to please God is given to you through the gospel root so that you may do His will and He will work in you that which is pleasing in His sight How? Through Jesus Christ, verse 21 concludes. Through Him, through Christ. I wonder if any of you are thinking, okay, how does this work? How is God pleased if all we're doing is giving to Him what He's already given to us? Because it's not like we're doing this on our own. I liken it to me having my kids say, Dad, I would like to give you a present for Father's Day or your birthday or Christmas. Okay. What do you want to get me? And they tell me what they had in mind, and it's something they have to purchase at a store, but they don't have any money. So I give them some money, and I say, great, go to the store with mom and go get something. Now, what if instead of buying me the present that they had intended to get, they get distracted and sidetracked because there's so many things at the store and they start purchasing stuff either for themselves or they start purchasing things that ultimately at the end of the day probably weren't that good for them. A bunch of candy and just load up on candy. I don't know. Would I be pleased with the way they use what I gave them? Well, I mean, I'm not a begrudging, awful, mean father that's going to just be upset that they purchased something, but I gave them that thing for them to use it for the gift for me. That was the intended purpose of me giving it to them. Now, ask it the other way around. Will I be any less pleased if they spend the time thinking through what daddy really likes? Because they know me. They go to the store, they spend the time, they pick it out, they use the money that I gave them. And they come back, they wrap it up, and say, Dad, here's your present. I would have to be an awful father if I was like, well, I just basically bought myself a present. Thanks, kids. Like, what kind of jerk would I have to be? See, God, he's giving you this life that you have. He's giving you all of the resources that you own, no matter how great or small they are. And he is telling you not just to give you a portion or a part. Give me your life, all of it. Because Jesus Christ has already given all of his life, not just a tenth or a portion, he gave it all. The gospel root, then, is not only the example for us to give, it is the grounds for which we can give. 
God, through the gospel of Christ, is like the Father giving us the resources we need when we don't have them to give him the gift back. And friends, he is a father who is well-pleased when he gets the gift back. Therefore, all worship, all sacrifices, all gifts to God come through the gift God gave to us first in Jesus Christ. God is only pleased because he is already pleased with his son. Do you remember Jesus in the story of the Gospels? Right before his ministry begins, he's being baptized. And there's this just amazing moment that all of us, if we were there, would be like, A dove comes down, Jesus is baptized in water, and then there's this voice, this thundering voice that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Know that if there's any way that you and I are going to please God, it will not be by the gifts that we offer in and of themselves, but only if we offer them through the well-pleased Christ. That's the gospel root, and it leads us to worship fruit. Let's look at that second half. Why say worship fruit? The word worship isn't here in this verse either. So first you're talking gospel. Hopefully you see the gospel through him. But I hope you also see that worship and fruit are here. The word fruit is in verse 15, the fruit of lips that acknowledges name. But turn back to chapter 12 and you'll see that the whole section of chapter 13 is actually all about worship anyway. It's not just these one or two verses that are talking about worship. Chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's acceptable worship? How do we worship God with reverence and all? How can we show our thankfulness for this unshakable kingdom that God's given us? Verse 1 of chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. That's worship. That's acceptable worship. Do not be neglecting the strangers. Show hospitality to them. Remember those who are in prison. Honor your marriage. Flee from sexual immorality. Keep your life free from the love of money. Remember your leaders. All of these things are explanations of how to worship God with an acceptable and reverent way of thanksgiving for what God has done for you. So when we get to chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, and we start seeing sacrificial language, First, the word continually is the word that would be referring to the sacrifices made in the morning and the evening in the Jewish sacrificial system. Then you see the word sacrifice, and then you see the word offer. All of these words are words used in the Old Testament to talk about the sacrificial worship of the Old Testament. So the context is worship in chapter 12, 28 and following, and the immediate context is worship. To give praise to God is obviously worship language. But notice that this praise to God does not come from nowhere. In the same way that Jesus says the overflow of our, how, how, our, our heart, the mouth speaks, so here we see that it is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Through him, when you understand the gospel root of through him, Jesus Christ's death on a cross, then praise and thanksgiving flow from your heart and out of your lips. You acknowledge his name, you confess him as Lord, and this bears fruit like a seed that's planted in and comes out. 
So this is the picture here. Worship fruit is produced by the gospel fruit that we see from through him. Two kinds of fruit here. Lips and lives. Verse 15 is the fruit of our lips, and verse 16 is the fruit of our lives. This is part of what we need to make sure we understand when we think about the idea of worship. If you do not worship seven days a week, then you do not worship one day a week. If your entire lives are not an act of worship, offer yourselves then as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. This is our New Testament reading this morning. So you give all of yourself. That's why verse 16 says, Your lives do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for this is a sacrifice that pleases God. It is an offering, a worship act. So this is what we're talking about, lips and lives. I want us to think a little bit about the lips here. Is the lips here referring to us singing songs on Sundays or even throughout the week? Well, I sing songs in my car and I listen to Christian radio and I sing songs when we get together for worship in my home with my kids and wonderful things to do. I don't think that this is all that is being referred to here. I think that would be a broad sense to apply, but what's the specific thing that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he says the fruit of lips? Well, we know it's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and is that again just a general acknowledgement or confession of who Jesus is, or is there something more specific? The immediate context we know is that Jesus suffered outside the gate in verse 12. Therefore, verse 13, we too should go outside the camp and bear reproach, suffer the disgrace that he endured, then through him continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, and this word that is, is helping you understand that this sacrifice is not like a literal animal sacrifice, obviously. The that is is showing metaphorically, in the same way that there was the Old Testament worship of sacrifice, here the New Testament worship is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So in light of Hebrews context in chapter 13, but then also in light of all of the book that we've studied so far, what is this fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name? Some translations you might have if they differ in the one we're reading right now, it will say the fruit of lips that confess his name, the confession of Christ as Lord. Now, we certainly do that when we pray. When we pray, our Father, who is in heaven, and we pray in the name of Jesus, and so we're confessing him as our Lord, and, and we're looking to him. We do that when we sing songs about how great he is, and we're acknowledging his name. But in conjunction with the context, I think it would be better for us to see this confession more as like a baptismal testimony. I once was living my own life, and I'm now confessing in front of all of you that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Or the evangelistic proclamation of the gospel. Christ alone through him will be the only way you can please God. Turn to Christ or find God's displeasure. That's the sort of fruit of the lips. And the reason I get that is because all through the book, if you turn back to chapter 3, verse 1, you're seeing he's urging these Christians to hold on to their confession. Chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, 
consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Then in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to that confession. And then in chapter 10, verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he whose promised is faithful. Repeatedly through this book, we see the idea of confessing that Jesus Christ is, in fact, who he is, the great high priest, the great Lord and Savior. They need to keep confessing and proclaiming and acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ. So I think if we're going to be more specific to what our writer has in mind, will we be better to not think of this as an instruction for worship and singing on Sunday morning, but rather when you go outside the camp? when you leave the church, when you enter the world and you declare to the world that Jesus alone is sufficient for the sacrifice of your sins. One author put it this way, Hebrews' concern, obviously in the immediate context, is to exhort believers that acknowledging Christ in the world will mean them to face opposition and suffering. But in its wider sense, the sacrifice of praise here in verse 15 will be given by those who confess Jesus when they go outside the camp in various forms of public testimony or through their evangelism. The offering of praise to God is not a matter of simply singing hymns or giving thanks in a church worship service, though these activities will be a helpful way to spur us on toward effective proclaiming Christ, the idea the author has in mind is the leaving the church and proclaiming the gospel. So don't think of singing songs as the fruit of lips. Think of the countless martyrs who went to their deaths singing the praises of Jesus to the world. Think of the man in India who was being skinned alive, and as he looked at his tormentor in the face, he said, take off my outer garment now, but today I will be clothed with a new garment when I see Jesus. How beautiful is the fruit of those lips as he's being skinned alive. What sacrifice of praise. Or Christopher Love, the missionary, as he was being led to the gallows and his wife is applauding him, they said, today you may sever my physical head, but you will never sever my spiritual head, Jesus Christ. That's the fruit of lips that God is pleased with when facing unexcruciating pain or difficulty, they still say, Christ is Lord. And the reason I think we should be thinking more like that is because of verse 15, say, through him then let us continually. What does continually mean other than not just day after day, but even in good days and bad? If you're doing this continually, and there will be times where you do not want to give praise to Jesus because you're looking at your circumstances and you're saying, well, if Jesus is Lord and he's sovereign over everything, how could he let this happen? Or should we be more like Job who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the fruit of lips that we're being talked about here and being encouraged through him. Let us continually offer sacrifices of praise to God like this. What could give God greater praise than you and me as regular average church members, even if we're not facing this sort of skinning our, 
being skinned alive or our head chopped off at the gallows. But friends, we live in a world that stinks at times, where there's suffering, where it hurts. Can you, in the middle of that suffering, say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes ways? And even as tears stream down our face, you say, praise be to God. He is good. Even in the midst of the deepest possible pains, he's sovereign. And I don't understand it, but I know that his character is unchanging, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he's good. He only does what is good. That's the fruit of lips that please God. This is what I think the author has in mind as he's encouraging them to go outside the camp and bear reproach. Go do that, Christians. And through Jesus, through the strength that he gives, through the equipping that he gives to do this, through the working within you, that which is pleasing in his sight, continue to make much of him and do it even in the most difficult days. That's the ultimate test of your lip service anyway, isn't it? It's really easy to come to church and just sing songs, especially if there's heat on and there's air conditioning in the summertime and things are comfortable, the chairs are soft, they're not like those ones we had over at CLA that we talked about last week. I mean, there's a lot of things that make, this is easy. But what about when things are hard? Will you continue to confess and acknowledge that Christ is on the throne and he is good and I praise him? You see, that's why it's not just lip service that worship is. It's your lives. That's why verse 16 matters. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for this is a sacrifice that God is pleased with. Do not be deceived here this morning that God is overwhelmingly pleased with hearts that have no desire to actually love him, but you're giving the lip service and you're going through body motions. It's some of the worst words in Scripture and the worst rebukes from Jesus himself. You confess me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Our lives should reflect that what we're saying with our mouths, what we're singing with our lips, what we're confessing to the rest of the world, that we are in fact Christians, is reflected by our lives of doing good and sharing what we have. This word share is actually the word that some of you might be familiar with, koinonia in the Greek. It's the word for fellowship, which again paints fellowship in a much clearer picture than just hanging around and drinking coffee together. That's an aspect, a sliver of fellowship. Write down if you want and look it up later, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. That's a picture of koinonia fellowship where you have a bunch of Christians who meet together regularly in each other's homes. They worship and praise God together, and then they share what they have. That's why this is translated, share what you have. Because there was koinonia fellowship, this idea that what's mine is yours and yours is mine. I'm not talking about socialism, government. I'm just talking about Christians who love each other so much that if someone's hurting, say, I'm going to help them, and I will use any financial means or time or energy that I have to help this brother or sister. That's the kind of fellowship in the lives that are pleasing to God. The gospel root that produces lives who are transformed by this news with sacrifices that are pleasing to God. If you turn just a couple pages over to the book of 1 John, you'll see, I think, another excellent example of this idea working together. 
1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. How gospel truths lead to worship fruit in both your lips and your lives. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Stop. That's gospel root, isn't it? That's news. That's just telling you that something's happened. We know what love is because God in Christ laid down his life for us. Is there any greater depiction of love? We know what love is? Look at the cross of Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, he died for us. That's love. But the verse continues and says, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's worship, friends. That's a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. If anyone, look at verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Notice the love that you're supposed to know about, about Jesus laying down his life. It should be in you. It should be rooted and changing not just your lips, but your whole lives, that you lay down your lives for other people, so that if you have worldly goods, you have food, and you see a hungry brother, and you just eat all of it, and they stay hungry, he says, you don't have God's love in you. You probably aren't a Christian if this is the normal pattern of your life, that you've got extra wealth, and you've got a home, and your brothers and sisters have no home to live in. What's wrong with you? God gave you a home when you were homeless. God gave you food to eat when you were hungry. Through Christ laying down his life, he has already demonstrated you the most amazing love that has ever been shown. And if that's in your heart, then this is what we do. Little children, verse 18, let us love not just in words or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what I think the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Gospel root, leading and producing worship fruit that has words and deeds, lips and lives. Therefore, Christian sacrifices are constant. They're not just morning and evening sacrifices at the altar of the temple. Christian sacrifices are every single day of your life. We lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. We lay down our lives for our lost estranged from the gospel of Christ, yet to be brothers and sisters through the proclamation of evangelism. So Embassy Church, it's time for you to ask yourself as an individual and us collectively. We talk a lot about the gospel, but is it bearing fruit? Worship fruit? Not just with our lips, but look at your lips. What do you talk about? As soon as this service is over, how quickly will you move on past the things of God and his word? Does it linger at all? Or is this just a little checkbox? Okay, did the church thing today. Now I'll go on and there's better things today. Sporting events, television, family activities, wonderful things, all of them. But are they as good as this? And is this on your lips? Do you acknowledge Christ's name, not just amongst one another after a church service is over or the next week, as it still lingers in your heart? I'm still wrestling through these ideas and meeting with people and discipleship communities and Bible studies throughout the week. 
the word of God lingering on our lips and in our hearts. But more significantly, when you go outside the camp, the camp of the Christian bubble that we put ourselves in at times, what about when you're in your workplaces? What about when we're in those difficult conversations with people that we know if we talk like this, we may not be friends with them ever again? Those are some difficult decisions. The fruit of lips that will please God. Are you going to please man or please God? Friends, this is why we have a church together. We don't have a church to have an event one day out of a week. We have a church together because these are the things that matter is that you and I would be able to live lives that reflect the glory of Jesus Christ even in the most difficult time. And if you think you can do that on your own, then you are so proud. That's why we have a church. That's why you should come to church today. Not just so you can hear God's word. That's a huge good reason to go to church. But so that you can hear the same word with another group of people and you can work on applying that word to your lives together. We need one another in these ways so that Christ would ultimately be pleased with us individually and corporately. So know that even though you are saved by grace through faith, not by works, that no one will ever boast that God saved me because of what I did. No, it's because of the news of what Jesus did through him. He is pleased. Know that even though God is pleased with you now, regardless of your performance last week or last night. That doesn't mean that there's a conditional day-to-day -day sort of pleasure that God has. The scriptures can sometimes be straightforward and simple and black and white, but other times there's contours and levels. So when we talk about this pleasure of God, realize that in the same way that me as a father, my children, I will love them regardless of the decisions that they make. If if I'm a good father, right? So let's say they rebel and they run off and they do all kinds of awful things. They're still my kid. I still love them. And in the same way, God's love is unconditionally tied to the work of Jesus Christ on a cross, not your performance. And he is pleased with Jesus, not ultimately with you. But don't let that confuse you that God's not pleased when you do efforts to try and please him today or this week or the rest of your life. And in the same way that I love my kids regardless, I'm sometimes pleased with them and I'm sometimes not so happy with them. And it doesn't change the basis of our relationship. It doesn't change the fact that they're my children. But it does change the fact that I might be all the more excited and blessing and enjoying the relationship that we have together because they're following in obedience. All of us should know this. So are you pursuing the pleasure of God in your life? Not just in an ultimate sense, but in a daily sense. Is God pleased with my actions today? It's a good thing for us to be thinking about together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so incredibly thankful this morning. As the scripture we just read from Hebrews chapter 12 says, since we've been given such great promises, let us worship you with thanks. 
God, we worship you with thanks now. We're thankful for the cross of Christ and this root that comes deep down into our heart and it changes and alters everything. We're thankful that there's not a single person in here that says, that, that wasn't for me. I don't need to hear that message. God, we're so thankful that this is a universal truth, true for every one of us, no matter where we're at. God, we're so thankful for the way that you not only are pleased with us because of your pleasure in Jesus, but that you are pleased when we serve our brothers and sisters. That there's this extra measure of pleasure that we can receive when we are faithfully declaring the good news to the lost. We're taking stands for truth, even if it means reproach and disgrace. God, we want to pray that you would give us the grace that we need to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, because Jesus once and for all sacrifice, we now remind ourselves of that by taking the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup.